The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. If you were here the last two weeks, you know that we did a two-week mini-series about work, um, which has now become a three-week not quite as many series about work. <laughs> uh, we, we were talking about the why and how of work, because I know a lot of you have uh, been struggling with work issues and, and wondering about, you know, what, what uh, work is going to look like for you in the next years of your life. And so the first week we talked about why do we work, and the second week we talked about how do we work, and we had a, such a good, rousing discussion, I thought, at the end of the time last week that um, it, would, it would be wrong not to talk a little bit more about it. So we're back here working overtime today uh, on this series. Uh, <laughs> you think that's a bad joke? That slide's never going away for the next half an hour. <laughs> I didn't work overtime on my slides this week. But, um, because I was working so much overtime on the topic. Uh, we... <laughs> So let, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me just bring you back really quickly through the past two weeks what we talked about because um, really what I'm going to do today is, is revisit a couple of those things. So in the first week we talked about the question of why do we work and I, I proposed a few biblical reasons why we work and you probably remember them if you were there or if you were here last week I recapped it again but uh, we work because God works, God is a worker and we're made in God's image and so we are inclined toward work. That's one reason. We work because of the curse of the fall. We talked about that uh, a little bit. How uh, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they each received a curse, and the, the woman's curse was related to childbirth, um, and the man's curse was uh, related to work becoming uh, burdensome and hard toil, uh, and no longer would he be able just to be able to eat the fruit and the plants in the garden. He would have to work hard to eat. Um, and we talked about how... Uh, the third biblical principle is that laziness is actually described as sin in the Bible. Um, and if you don't want to be that mean about it, you can at least say that uh, laziness is harmful to your well-being. It's not, not a good thing to have um, controlling your life. So those were spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual reasons why we work. And then we talked about the very practical fact that you need to work because you need money, right? Keep your hands off of my stack. It's you have to have money if you want to eat. That's how the world works today. And uh, you have to have money because you, you have, probably are in debt. You took out loans or used a credit card or something. You have to pay that off. You have to have money because you want to live a lifestyle that maybe is, maybe is a little bit more extravagant than it needs to be. Um, so all these, there's a very practical side of it. You have to work because you need to pay the bills, right? Not exactly rocket science, um, but if you were a rocket scientist, you would have plenty of money, so it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I did suggest is that if you want to work less, you probably need to live on less. And it's not, again, really the most complicated concept in the world, but it's one that we have a lot of difficulty with, isn't it? And last week, we talked about how we ought to work, and I gave you some principles for that as well, one of which was to observe the Sabbath, 
Again, not in a legalistic way, not from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday and you can't drive more than a half a mile or whatever. In a very uh, practical, spirit-of-the-law, life-giving way, you need to rest. You need to have a day that is sacred and set apart in your life so that all the intrusions that work creates um, are dismissed. They are set aside for that day. And I also suggested that you don't become paralyzed for the, by the search for God's will in your life. Uh, and I'm going to talk more about that, so I'll, I'll leave it for now. And then the last principle about how we ought to work last week is to remember that work is not your life. And so don't spend your life on your work. Of course, you're going to spend a lot of your life at work, but don't spend your life working. Do you see the distinction there? Um, Annie Dillard said how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And so it's easy to get into these ruts, whether it's uh, work or a bad relationship or Facebook or um, exercise or any number of other things that might, might be good or bad or indifferent, but you, you, you end up spending your minutes and your hours and your days and your weeks and pretty much your life is being spent on something. And I would uh, caution you as people of faith not to make life the thing that, or make, to make work the thing that you spend your life on. So that's the how of work from, from last week. And today I want to talk about work in two ways. I want to talk about work as a potential source of joy in our life. And I also want to talk about um, how we can consider work a place where we ought to live out our faith in a meaningful way. And the way I'm going to talk about these two things is by way of clarifying two points that I've made in the first and in the second week. So the first clarification is this. I want to elaborate a little bit on what I said about work as part of the curse of sin. Because I think that's, it, that's a difficult topic. It's one that, I, as you may recall, if you were here on the first week, I, I told you I almost didn't include that in the sermon but I saw it there in the Bible, and I thought, I've got to talk about this. Um, one angle that I, that I didn't include uh, about that, probably should have, was that work actually did exist prior to the fall, prior to sin entering the world. It wasn't like there was no work, then Adam and Eve sinned, and suddenly they had to work. Uh, you know, well, Adam had to work, and that, you know, and you, can, you can sort of see the cultural lenses there, but... Um, that's not what it was. There was work before the fall. What happened was that in the fall, work then became a burden and a toil and uh, a pain, literally. So let me just read to you really quickly the, the, the story. This is from Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Now, you are all biblical scholars, and you all know that the fall, the story of the fall is in Genesis what? Genesis 3. So if we're in Genesis 2, we are before the fall, right? Before the serpent and the you know, the fruit and the, all that stuff. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's in the second account of creation uh, in, the, in the Old Testament here, in the book of Genesis. The Lord God took the man, having created him, and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So he had a job to do right off the bat. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So, Adam, before even in this story, before the woman was even created, uh, of course, in the first story, they're created together, it seems like, but um, 
work occurs in a very pleasant, it's almost pastoral, Norman Rockwell kind of scene. A beautiful garden. He's in communion with God. He has to just till it and keep it, you know. And he can eat from any tree he wants, eat whatever he wants, except that one tree. That shouldn't be a problem, right? There's like a thousand trees. <laughs> and only can, there's only one I'm not supposed to eat from. He, he's definitely going to be okay with that. Um, so the curse of work that comes in after the fall, after he does, um, you know, at his wife's suggestion, eat the fruit from the one tree. Now listen, it's don't blame the woman, guys. Because the, the, the language in the Bible indicates that he was standing there the whole time watching. Um, we, that's another sermon. But <laughs> he was biding his time until somebody else had already eaten the fruit. And then he's like, oh, I'll try it too, sure. Um, but the curse that came after the fall was not that work existed at all. It was that it became a burden. It was crucial to his survival. He had to do it if he wanted to eat. And yet it was extremely difficult and even painful. And so what I'd like to suggest is that we look at work, when you're thinking of it as a consequence of the curse of sin, um, think about it just as we think about any other consequence of sin or consequence of the fall. Now, that means you have to allow me to get a little bit theological just for a minute here. Um, but it's, it's, it'll be fun, I promise. So this is something that we actually talk about in our membership course, and we've just, we just did the membership course a couple weeks ago. Some of you were here for that. Uh, but we don't talk about it. We haven't talked about it on a Sunday recently. About what the consequences of sin really are. What the what the what the fall. What happened at the fall? And the way that theologians describe this, well, they describe it a lot of ways. But one way is that that what was whole became cracked. Um, there's a cracking of all that was whole in the world. So what was a close relationship with God uh, in the Garden of Eden became more distant. They were cast out of the garden. And what was a caretaker relationship with nature became contentious and uh, difficult. And all that was harmonious in the world became a little bit discordant. And this happened within our individual souls as well. And, and the way we talk about that theologically is that the image of God, which we received in creation, Genesis 1.27 talks about how God created men and women in his image, the Latin term that theologians use is imago dei, the image of God, that also became cracked and altered. And it's still present in us. We still say we're made in the image of God, but that image is imperfect. And it's a poor reflection uh, of what it should be and what it was. And so here's another uh, metaphor that might be helpful to understanding this. Uh, if you imagine your spiritual life... Um, as a little plant, okay, it's springtime. How many people are, do you have any, anybody have seedlings in their kitchen right now or on their windowsill or out in the garden or something? We have some in our house. A little tiny plant just barely peeking up out of the soil, right? Now imagine if you ripped that out of the soil and just set it on the table. What would happen to the plant? It would die, right? And it probably wouldn't take very long. And that's the fall, Kind of ripped the little seedling out of the out of the door out of the dirt, but God's grace is a rich soil in in which that little seedling that little plantling can be replanted, and that's you. You can replant it in God's grace, and over the course of your life, 
you grow and you strengthen and as you deepen your roots into God's grace soil, uh, you begin to produce fruit in your life. And so the fall resulted in an uprooting of spiritual health, if you will. Okay, so what does this have to do with work? Uh, Well, I think that part of growing in your faith is getting closer back to that Eden state, if you will, uh, of, of work as a joy. It's something that God made you to do instead of a curse and something that you, you only do because you need money. <clears throat> so just as any other area of our life is fractured and broken and uprooted and disturbed by sin, our own sin and the sin that's present in the world, so it is with work. And, you, you know, you, if you want to draw that linear point-to-point relationship between the curse uh, in Genesis 3 and, you know, your soul-sucking job in a cubicle, you know, you can do that. Um, but I would, I would suggest you go more with the big picture and think about how uh, this is an area of your life, just as any other area of life, that can be restored and can become something that... Um, reflects your roots going deeper in God's grace and demonstrates that by the fruit that is born out uh, of that situation. So uh, some of this came out in the, the question and response time we did last week. A few of you said a little bit sheepishly, well, I kind of like my job. <laughs> What is, what's so bad about work? I like to go to work. I have a great job. Um, and that's great. I, I, you know, that's, that's wonderful. And I know that many of you experience the joy of producing good work, whether it's uh, because you're a craftsman or you're an engineer or a social worker or a contractor or anything else. Um, I believe that that, too, is a reflection of the imago dei, God's image, the image of God. Um, producing good things. And it's wonderful that you can find that in your work. Um, But originally, the the purpose of this series was sort of targeted at people who are having a hard time at work, who like, this is not life-giving. It's not a place where I'm blossoming. (laughs) There's no fruit being produced here. It's just a grind. Um, but, But that's not the case for all of you, and I recognize that. So no, work is not always 100% curse. Um, in fact, I think it's God's ideal that work be a joy for you. Um, just There's lots of things that are God's ideal that we fall short of or that the world doesn't allow uh, because, because of the brokenness uh, of the fall. So that's the clarification I wanted to make about that, about the curse of sin. The second clarification is this. I want to expound a little bit on what I meant when I talked about God's will last week. Remember, um, I had suggested to you that you ought not be paralyzed by the search for God's will in your life. We sort of joked about how people um, of faith sometimes just don't do anything because they can't, they feel they can't move until they know exactly what God wants them to do next. Um, And and, uh, my my counter-argument to that perspective is that, was, was that and is that, there are really only five places in the New Testament that talk about God's will in an explicit way, and none of them are that specific. It's not, I joked last week, you know, 
I can't remember what I said, but it's something about you know Peter going to you know to have the uh, have the veal. <laughs> you know that's God's will for your life or, or whatever. Um, you know it's maybe not fair to to joke about people being that specific, except that really I've been around Christians my whole life, and many, if not most, evangelical Christians think about God's will in that way as some needle in a haystack that you have to find, some tightrope that you have to walk on, and if you take one step in the wrong direction, you're off, and then you've got to start at the beginning, like some spiritual episode of Wipeout. Right? <laughs> I see some of you have six-year-olds at home, too. <laughs> So what I want to do, and I, I, I breezed through this last week, and it probably wasn't fair to the whole argument. So what I want to do is, is breeze through it slightly slower <laughs> this week, what those five passages in the New Testament actually are, um, because it, it will help you maybe get a bigger sense, get a, a tighter handle on my argument here. Um, this is how the New Testament describes God's will when it says, the will of the Lord is, or it is God's will that. These are the verses. I'll read them to you right now. The first, and if you want to write them down, they're not on the screen, but you can write down the references if you want to study it at home. First one is in John chapter 6, 37 through 40. And it's Jesus speaking. Uh, and he says some things. And then he concludes by saying, This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. John 6, Jesus kind of an important guy in the Bible, describes God will, God's will not as like finding the perfect job or the perfect spouse or the perfect parking spot, as I often joke, but it's that you see him and you believe in him. And as a result of that belief, you receive eternal life. That is God's will. That's the first one. Um, the next one is uh, Ephesians 5. 15 through 20 is the, the bigger passage, but I'm just going to read to you the one verse. He says, So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, the apostle, is saying that the will of God is that you don't get filled with substance, you know, and we could, he says, uh, wine, but there's any number of other substances we could fill ourselves with that would result in us um, kind of losing control of our faculties in one way or another. And instead he's saying, no, be filled with not what, but who? <laughs> the Spirit. That's the will of God, that instead of being filled with wine, you're filled with the Spirit, and it results in the same kind of like singing maybe, <laughs> but for a different reason. Right. Okay, so that's the second one. Next, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. Very explicitly says, For this is the will of God, colon, your sanctification, which simply means being made holy, that you abstain from fornication, that each one of you knows how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions, that no one wrongs or exploits a brother or sister in this matter. Okay. I don't see what that has to do with work. What's God's will for where I work? Uh, well, 
God's will is that you are sanctified, that you control, you, you get control of your impulses. And it has to do with being filled with the Spirit, by the way. And that you live in harmony with each other, not exploiting each other, not using each other. Later on in that same book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is a little bit longer. Let me just read it to you. We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you. Ah, Now we're talking about work, interestingly enough. Uh, Respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Uh, Wait. It's not like a job. That's, he's talking about the community of faith. Um, oops. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers. Okay, don't be lazy. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And here's the kicker. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay? It's not exactly like real specific. It's talking about how you ought to live in community with each other. Isn't it? That is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And finally, the last one. um, Frankly, it's a little bit obtuse. It's a little bit hard to get into. I'll read it to you and and maybe give you two seconds on what I think it means. But the the point will be it doesn't really have a whole lot to say about where you work. (laughs) Uh, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme, remember they're in the Roman Empire, or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will... That by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. (laughs) Okay, so this is a little bit weird, but the the thumbnail version, I think, is that in the Roman Empire at this time, uh, because it's pre-Constantine, pre State religion is Christianity. Uh, Christianity actually was a good way to get yourself killed. Uh, thrown to the lions for the entertainment of the people. Crucified, um, you know, to mock the Lord you serve, uh, etc. And what, what's being said here is that you have to respect the authority of the institutions where you are. And by your silence, you will... Excuse me. By doing right, you will silence the foolishness that is around you. Um, so, and we have accounts of Christians being sent to the lions, saying nothing. And in contrast to you know others who may have been in the uh, Colosseum, being completely silent <laughs> in their death was making a statement about what they believed and who they served and, and, and why it affected them. Okay, so it's God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. Okay, so those are the five instances. That's it in the New Testament if you're looking for places that explicitly say what God's will is. So I, I, I wanted to give you a little bit more depth on that, so I didn't just, last week I kind of breezed by it a little bit, and I apologize for that. But I even used some fairly drastic language last week. I said, in light of those th- 
things that actually describe what God's will is, that I don't think God actually cares where you work. Do you remember I said that? Anybody cringe a little bit when I said that? Wait, God doesn't care where I work? Well, okay. I think that God cares where you work. He cares about you. He cares where you work in the same way that a loving father would care where his daughter or son worked. I don't think he wants to dictate that to you. You must work for this company at that desk. Face it that way, you know. <laughs> Any more than a loving father would do that to his children. Now, there's some family businesses and things that maybe get a little bit ugly there, but the analogy breaks down. Um, So when I say that God doesn't care where you work, I don't mean that he doesn't care about where you work. I mean he doesn't mind if you choose that place or that place most of the time. So don't be paralyzed by that is what I was getting at. Of course, I do leave open the possibility that God might actually call you to a particular place. Now, this is the way that people who are vocational ministers like missionaries and pastors and um, bishops and so forth look at their careers as being directed by God, and you, you hear pastors talk about having a call to a particular congregation sometimes. Uh, um, but I think that's possible that that's the case even for people who are not vocational ministers, that sometimes God is calling you to do something different. Um, but here's the caution. You, you must not use that kind of language. God called me to X. Unless you're absolutely positive that's what happened. Don't do it, okay, church friends. Don't do it just to lend a little bit of spiritual credibility to what you want to do with your life. Okay. I'm, it's amusing, but I'm deadly serious. Because you don't, A, you don't need that spiritual credibility to, to be doing God's will. as defined in the New Testament. You can do God's will in wherever you work. So pick a place you like and go there. But B, I think you're, if, when you say something like that, God called me to do this, unless you're really, really sure, you are walking right up to the edge of blasphemy. And when the, the Ten Commandments say, don't take the Lord's name in vain, uh, the, new, the New International Version and some of the modern translations say, don't misuse the name of God, I don't think that's just about swearing. I think it's also about slapping a God label on whatever you're doing. So be careful with that one. <clears throat> so, then given this understanding of God's will as holy guidelines for how you ought to live, not as a specific set of tasks that you have to figure out and accomplish, how do we accomplish that in the workplace? How do we achieve God's will in the workplace? Well, it's a matter of taking those general principles with you wherever you go, whether it's work, play, Vacation, Rio, whatever. And what are those principles again? Your salvation, being filled with the Spirit rather than with wine, having control of your appetites and desires, living at peace with those around you, and rejoicing and giving thanks, and counteracting the evil that exists in your world by doing what is right. That's God's will. That is what you must carry into the workplace with you wherever you go. 
And in some ways, that's harder, isn't it? That's a lot harder if you think about it. It would be really easy if all you had to do was, if, if the way it worked was that you had to find the specific job that God is calling you to go to. And once you went there, you had done God's will. And you work that job and you do nothing but complain. You shed no Christ's light on anybody around you. You're dishonest, maybe. You treat your business competitors evilly. You, you lie to your boss. You step on your coworkers to, to get the promotion. You treat your subordinates like dirt. And everyone else in the job. But hey, this is where God called me. God called me to this place to be a complete jerk. Right? You could say that. You wouldn't say it that way, of course. You'd be being the complete jerk and say you were doing God's will because you felt God had called you to that particular job. That would be a lot easier because to live out God's will as described in a workplace is really hard. Have you met some of the people at work? So that's why I say you get to choose wherever you want to work most of the time, I think. But you have to work in a way that is holy. So, straw poll. When I sent out the e-news this week, and uh, the email said at the top, we're going to extend this work series, and one of the things we're going to talk about was living out your faith in the workplace. How many people, be honest, thought, oh, no, he's going to talk about evangelism. He's going to make me talk about, he's going to talk about converting my coworkers. Anybody think that a little bit? Okay, <laughs> I see that hand. Okay. All right, uh, straw poll. How many people didn't actually read the e-news when, when you're <laughs> Yeah, I know how it is. I didn't really read it either until I started writing it, so. <laughs> Sometimes I want to put a funny word in there right in the middle just to see if anybody notices. <laughs> Well, in my view, living out your faith in the workplace, is, it means a lot more than just evangelizing or sharing the gospel with your coworkers. It means a lot more than that. In fact, if you are not living according to God's will, as revealed in the New Testament, in the, co- in the, in the workplace, if you're a business cheat or if you're insubordinate or if you're the person who eats somebody else's yogurt in the fridge, <laughs> like, <clears throat> you probably should not bother trying to convert anybody to Jesus. Because you're just going to make it worse. <laughs> like, that dude is sharing his faith with me. He ate my yogurt last week. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> the other side of that coin, though, is that you could be the shiniest shining light in the entire American workforce. And if you are completely bashful about your faith or you actively work to hide it from your coworkers, that won't make a shred of difference for people being drawn to the kingdom of God by that light that you are shining. And so there are lots and lots of ways that you could think about working this out in your own job. Um, we, could, we could talk for the next hour about how you could do that. Somebody emailed me this week and said, I consider it a, a privilege to be a Christian in my workplace because, um, you know, I'm a project manager and sometimes people miss deadlines and stuff like that and they come to me tail between their legs thinking that I'm just going to hammer them and I respond with what I believe is a Christ-like grace to that 
and I see that it breathes life into their job. And it, it allows, it, I can see the stress drain out of their face. And I know that means the difference uh, will, will go back to their homes and their spouse and their children if they have any and all these things. So when you start thinking about how your relationships with other people and living them out in a godly way affects all the people that, that they are surrounded by, it's really pretty amazing. And we could talk for hours, like I said, about what your specific job is and uh, the specific ways that you could live out God's general will at that place. It's one of those um, really, really neat things about living out uh, faith in Christ is that you, you have this amazing big picture calling and by definition, you can't live out the big picture. You can only live out your little part of it, your little corner. Um, but you are free to do that in so many different ways. Uh, it's really a wonderful, beautiful thing. Uh, so, yes, work can and I think ought to be a joyful experience for you. I think that is God's desire for work, that you are in the garden, tilling it and keeping it. And it's also a place, um, maybe the best place, given how much time we spend there, where you can allow the light of Jesus to shine through you to a whole different, a whole amazing range of different types of people. Um, and so that's that's uh, what I think you, what I think you ought to do. Let's pray together. God, you have called us in Jesus to uh, live a life uh, worthy of him. And we know that we fall short of that um, daily, hourly, <laughs> minutely. And uh, we are so grateful for your grace, which covers our shortcomings, which uh, draws us closer to you and uh, which makes us take steps in holiness so that we are closer to that ideal. And as we think about our workplace, we hope that in the power of your Spirit, we would walk in those doors in your grace and that we would be vessels of that grace, that we would be light in our workplace, that we would shine the light of Christ on our coworkers and our managers and our subordinates and our business competitors and anyone else we might encounter at our jobs, that we would truly do your will at work. Uh, and we, we hope that we would do that and we pray and ask for your guidance and courage and direction and leading for ways that we can do that. So show us that. Uh, call us to it. And give us the courage to, to take those steps that we need to take. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> so that's work. We are uh, going to respond to the Word of God, uh, as we always do, by taking communion together. And uh, if you are here visiting with us, you need to know that this is an open table for uh, all who follow Jesus and who seek to live out their faith in this place. It's not 
uh, tied to our particular membership or to part of to being part of our denomination or family of churches. It's for uh, it's for Christians, um, for people who are following Jesus. And um, our particular method is to tear a piece of the bread off and to dip it in the cup. We have both wine and juice. And uh, if you are a parent and would like to have your children participate in that with you, you're welcome to do so. Um, I'll just remind you where they are. <laughs> Down the hall. <laughs> um, and please do go get them. If you'd prefer to take it alone, you can do that first. Um, but collect your children, please. Uh, we're going to continue to worship together uh, in song. And uh, as we do that, I'd encourage you to respond however you feel God leading you to do, whether that's at communion or whether that's with some silent uh, prayer or meditation or um, journaling, uh, writing some stuff down that are, that's on your mind. Uh, but respond as, as God leads you, and let's continue to worship him together. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.